Welcome back to Teaching Matters, the University of Edinburgh's hub for discussing, promoting, and showcasing teaching and learning across the university. We're a website, blog, and podcast, but most importantly, a small group of people passionate about providing platforms for conversations surrounding teaching and learning. This episode is part of our Teaching Awards series, which spotlights the Edinburgh University Student Association's 13th Annual Teaching Awards. This year, the awards received over 2,680 nominations, and a select few made the final shortlist. This series features conversations between nominees, allowing them to reflect on their experiences and share good practice. Today's conversation is between two nominees, both senior lecturers at Edinburgh, Dr. Guy Fletcher at the School of Philosophy and Dr. Mark Geddes at the School of Politics. Guy and Mark discuss a range of topics in this fantastic episode, how their research informs their teaching, the need to break down dry academic concepts by rooting them in the everyday, how they transform their classrooms during and beyond COVID-19, and the importance of real dialogue between staff and students. So, without further ado, here's Guy and Mark. My name is uh, Guy Fletcher. I am a senior lecturer in philosophy in the School of PPLS. I'm also the undergraduate director for philosophy, and my research and teaching is in uh, moral philosophy in general, moral and political philosophy in general. And more specifically, I'm interested in uh, metaethics, which is the study of evaluative and normative thought and talk. And I'm also interested in well-being. So I've written an introductory book about well-being and a research book. And then I'm also interested in where these two things meet. So I'm interested in thought and talk about what's good and bad for uh, for ourselves and for others. So yeah, I've spent a lot of time thinking about like a good life and like what's fundamentally good for people and what's bad for people. And I teach some courses about this. And I also teach courses about sort of moral philosophy, you know, what we morally ought to do and why, and then political philosophy. So normative questions that arise when thinking about state level institutions. I'm Dr. Mark Edis. I'm, I'm a senior lecturer in politics based at the School of Social and Political Science. I've been at the university since 2016 and mostly researching and teaching around uh, British politics, which obviously has quite a lot of ups and downs um, since 2016. So it's been really, really fun last um, last six years to teach British politics, in particular teaching on my research area, um, which is on parliaments. So I've developed an expertise around how the UK Parliament in particular works uh, and its accountability processes, how it tries to hold the executive to account. Um, So my research is mostly focused around that. And so I co-developed and co-teach on a course uh, called Parliamentary Studies, which also looks at the Scottish Parliament. And meanwhile, I also teach an introductory course uh, called Introduction to British Politics as well, which looks at the broader political system as well as processes and crises that British politics is going through uh, most of the time as well. Um, Guy, would you want to start by summarizing your course that you've been teaching? Um, should we should we start with that, perhaps? Yeah, that sounds great. So uh, in semester one of this year, I taught uh, a course called Normative Theory at year three, which is the sort of larger size of course that we offer at uh, Honours. And that was a course that was about like, moral theories and two moral theories in particular. So 
consequentialism uh, was the first one, and that's the view that what makes right actions right is the value of the consequences brought about. So put crudely, it's all about just like making the world better, and that's kind of all the morality consists in. Then we also examined a different kind of uh, moral theory uh, called contractualism, focused specifically on the contractualism of T.M. Scanlon, which has been made kind of semi-popular by the TV program The Good Place. This theory says that you know, morality fundamentally is a matter of being able to justify our actions to other people. So it's not a kind of social contract theory that says, you know, we actually have made some contract with each other um, or anything like that. It says that when we think morally, what we're thinking about is our ability to justify our actions to other people. And so we thought about how these two theories fare kind of in their own right and how they do in comparison to each other. So they have this nice feature where the good features of the one view are not obviously present in the other view and vice versa. Um, so yeah, we, we looked at that and we, we thought about issues such as uh, duties to future generations, imposition of risk and uh, how to aggregate or whether to aggregate harms and benefits to different people when thinking about distributive questions. Um, and we also thought of a little bit about uh, human extinction, what duties we have, if any, to ensure the survival of humanity. Those are really big questions. Can I can I then ask as a follow up? So does does the course also delve more into sort of real life examples on an everyday basis in terms of how you're trying to navigate the the world as you're as you're getting through it as well? Does it does it do some of that as well? Yeah. So we did think about some like pretty everyday kind of cases. So maybe this doesn't count as everyday, but we did think about if you work for a sort of public institution that is in charge of distributing harms and benefits to or the risk of harms and benefits to people should you simply sum up like small harms and benefits and treat them as on a par if there's enough of them as like a really large harm or benefit so there's an example that Scanlon uses which is uh, which is really nice which is imagine that we're watching the world cup final and there's millions of us watching the world cup final and really enjoying it and someone in the TV transmitter station is being painfully electrocuted. And the only way to rescue them is to switch off the uh, coverage. And so we thought about how to think about those kinds of cases. Is it the case that, so is it true that if there are enough of us watching the, the final and enough of us enjoying it enough that we just reach a point where that outweighs the suffering and that's all that matters? Or should we think about the case some other way? So that's maybe that doesn't count as fully every day. But we also then thought about the non-identity problem, which is how to think about duties to future generations, given the fact that what we do affects who comes into existence. Right? So in everyday discussions of climate change, for example, we tend to talk about wronging future people or duties to future people in a way that on the surface makes it sound like there's some set of people who are going to come into existence in the future and we can make them fare better or worse. But of course, that's not strictly true, right? Because what we do affects who comes into existence. So a different per different set of people will result from us building coal power stations, from building, uh, yeah, from making some other kind of intervention. And so that's, yeah, we, we did think about that. And questions such as you know, if, you're, if you're thinking of having children, like how to think about the fact that when you have children might affect the prospects of those children. Um, and so, yeah, we did, that, that was some quite everyday stuff. And I, I told a number of probably cringeworthy personal anecdotes to, uh, to illustrate some of the, the ideas that we covered. <laughs> um, and yeah, how about you? So, um, so what, what was the course that you were teaching this, uh, this year? 
Yeah, so that, that's what you just discussed is really interesting because that's the approach that I take for the course that, well, both courses that I teach um, every year, Introduction to British Politics and also Parliamentary Studies. And uh, Parliamentary Studies is the honours option that I teach, which goes into a deep look into how the UK Parliament and the Scottish Parliament work. And so the reason that I asked about the everyday sort of examples is because one thing that I try to do in, in parliamentary studies is look at these theories of how should a parliament work or here's what the legislative process looks like. Um, here's how parliament is supposed to hold government to account. What does that then look like in real life? Sort of what do politicians actually do? How do clerks try to support MPs and so on and so forth? And so a lot of what my course does, and I think this is probably one of the reasons that some of the students like it, is because it directly engages with, with parliamentary practice. And so the course is taught through seminars on a weekly basis where we go through the academic literature and the academic debates on sort of on parliaments and legislatures. But then we also have guest speakers once a week as well from the House of Commons or from the Scottish Parliament. And they, they then explore with them what it's actually like, you know, are those theories that we just read about um, in those dry academic uh, papers, are they actually sort of accurate? Do, do they actually happen? And it gives an opportunity for the students then to really understand the, the real life of parliaments and sort of the ins and outs of how they how they work in practice, um, which I think which is always really, really fun to teach, ensures that there's a lot of interaction um, as well for the, between the students and parliaments directly, which I think otherwise when you're teaching material in the abstract can otherwise be it remains abstract, right? And, and students are perhaps not as engaged when they're, when they're doing, when they're learning about um, an institution or a, or a topic or a theory. Um, but can you tell me a little bit more then about sort of how your teaching has sort of adapted or evolved over the years or particularly in the last couple of years? Because I'm really interested in understanding how, how other people have tried to deal with particularly the pandemic and how things have developed since then, because obviously interaction had to be very, very different um, over, the last, over the last two years. Yeah, so so the course that I taught um, was, yes, yeah, so a normative theory has run, uh, and I've taught it um, with roughly the same syllabus for about, I think, three or four times um, in total. And yeah, my main aim kind of going into it was to try and preserve, like, and maximize like, the degree of interactivity. So I taught, I didn't have lecture recordings, so we were under the limit that could meet in person. So we had a big seminar all together, and then we'd have weekly tutorials with, I think, a third or a quarter in each uh, class in each tutorial. And yeah, so I went, I went and sort of looked at the lecture theatre beforehand, and it it was, you know, obviously vastly oversized um, in order to facilitate social distancing. And so my main thought was like, well, they'll be able to hear me because of the AV equipment, but will anyone be able to hear anyone else? Uh, given that this was semester one, so that, you know, wearing masks. And this is all kind of very unfamiliar. So I yeah, looked at millions of different ways of allowing for sort of interactivity in the classroom on the sort of assumption that people wouldn't be able to hear each other. And the the one that I found that seemed the best was um, a platform called Padlet. And so I basically created a Padlet for the course, and then I put the QR code for that on all the handouts. So we'd have like regular handouts and the QR code on those would then allow people to ask questions during the class and I'd uh, for at least the first couple of classes I had the questions on the Padlet open on the massive screen behind me. It turned out fortuitously that actually they could hear each other sufficiently well um, even through masks and stuff so actually the Padlet which I thought would be primarily used in class I think very few people ever asked a question on it because even the people right at the very back could, could interact and so we actually had 
the normal amount of people asking questions and discussion and that sort of thing. And then so the Padlet really became useful for sharing things between classes. And so it was this kind of semi-informal place for people. So I shared links to like articles that I stumbled across that illustrated ideas from the course and people and like film recommendations and and people would ask questions and it was nice because it, it allowed someone to ask a question and everyone to see the answer you know, university learning management platforms are not like always like great for uh, various things but padlet was like much better than any other platform i've encountered so yeah I've, and then i think one week i made a sort of podcast about some like particularly difficult material that we covered but um yeah my um perhaps very unbold approach was to just try and bring about what was sort of normal pre-covid um yeah um, and, and how about you what, what did you how did you adapt things yeah so i uh, i taught in semester two both of my courses uh, british politics and parliamentary studies and so by that point i think students were a lot more at ease about meeting in person again and I think we'd also got used to being in classrooms wearing masks and so on. So it actually, it felt at first a bit odd for the first couple of weeks, of course, but uh, but I taught my honours course um, entirely in person as well. And it actually had a similar setup in that we had guest speakers were one big class and then um, it was smaller groups where we would discuss the academic literature. Um, so similar structure, I think, to your, to your course, Kai. But I think the big lesson for me was actually about communication. So pre-pandemic, I often just assumed that students understood what was happening each week that they would prepare for class and that I would just come in and do my teaching and that would be it. Um, whereas then during the pandemic, I started realizing that actually students aren't necessarily aware of how everything sits together. And I think partly because not even I was sure how everything was sitting together whilst we were teaching it online. And so one of the big legacies for the pandemic wasn't actually the use of technology so much as it was understanding that students don't necessarily see how, how things fit together. And therefore, I put far more emphasis on communication with the students to guide them through the course material a lot more, a lot more often and a lot more clearly. So I would send out weekly messages about this is what we're covering this week this is where we're meeting this, these are some of the core questions that we're going to try to answer and so on and so forth which sounds like a basic thing that i should have done pre-pandemic but i think the pandemic forced me to be far more critical and reflect about how i communicate with students um, and so i think that's something that i that i took a lot more seriously and i think improved the course a lot which you know was a, quite a simple thing to be honest to to do i think oh, but that, that was yeah that was absolutely my experience both personally but also through our staff student liaison committees I learned that students have like a much greater appetite for explicit structuring and explicit uh, instruction about what's going to happen and what they need to do I, I'd always just assumed that it was much more obvious to them how things were working than it in fact is and I just should have realized that previously but I also just thought they'd find it really boring and annoying to have lots of messages from me saying like we're going to do this and uh, this is how this fits together. I was like, you know, they, they don't want that. But it turns out that at least a significant chunk of them want a lot more of that than I'd ever previously appreciated. So yeah, that was learning that students like it if you give them a kind of plan of like, here's what you should do this week and in this roughly this order. Yeah, that, that was really valuable. Yeah, I think I think that that for me was was a, a key lesson that I learned was that because I thought students enjoyed the freedom of doing what they wanted to do, but which to, to an extent is obviously true, but they like to do that within, as far as I can tell anyway, within, within a sort of structured environment where we do give far clearer guidance about what works and what doesn't work rather than letting students sort of float or sink uh, by themselves, I think. 
Yeah, so, so can I ask then, um, so what did students learn from, from your course? What did they enjoy the most about it? Yeah, so actually in that sort of inevitable way, I've now thought of a, a sort of much better example of how we thought about everyday examples, right? So I was trying to sort of shoehorn it in here. So one of the things that we talked about on the course a lot was um, friendship, right? So we talked a lot about like the interaction between morality and friendship. And so just to give an example, if you're a consequentialist and you think that the world, that morality requires you to maximize value at all times, that on the face of it looks like it conflicts with having friendships, right? So having friendships will take up some of your time and some of your resources um, of various sorts. And so we spent a lot of time like thinking about the extent to which you know we're morally permitted to spend time, you know, time and energy like on friendships um, rather than making the world a better place. And so I think one of the things the students took from it was that you know, there's some like really difficult decisions to make where I think they're kind of attracted to consequentialism. Uh, you know, the, the idea that you should you should make the world as good as it can be is like an incredibly attractive ideal. But getting them to sort of see the consequence, uh, yeah, unintended, but the uh, the consequences of that, and like what that would really mean for like just everyday life, I think that that was one thing that they took from it was that you know you really do have to choose between this compelling ideal and the kind of ordinary friendships that we we have, unless you have some sophisticated story to tell about how having these kinds of friendships and engaging in the sort of bourgeois activities that we all engage in with our friends how that actually serves to maximize value in the long term, which to me just seems incredibly implausible. But then I think also, I mean, some of the questions that we were thinking about are really, like, are really, really interesting and really, really hard. Um, there's just a lot of things that, there's a lot of places where you can put together a whole bunch of compelling ideas that just seem obvious and then see that you just have to give up some of them. And so they would have some commitments in general that when you spell out what that would mean in practice, they kind of bulk at that. And so I think that, you know, what they got from the course was sort of detailed understanding of these two kind of broad ethical theories. But from discussion with them and like when I saw their eyes light up, I think it was when they walk around and kind of see like, oh, wow, actually this thing that we all think of as like utterly uncontentious is actually like potentially deeply wrong. Um, so that could be you know, spending time with friends, but also ways in which we aggregate small harms and benefits. So we frequently think that you know, if you have a choice between inflicting a harm on one person uh, or the same you have to so someone's going to be harmed right and you have a choice between that harm being incurred by five people each individually or one person people just like well of course you should you should allow the uh, the one person to be harmed to prevent the harm to the five and we read some really interesting papers that cast doubt on that and make it seem like yeah actually you can't just tot up the different harms suffered by different people and compare them um, and so i feel like that is a real kind of worldview shifter and I saw a few students end up convinced that we in fact should never aggregate harms across different people and that would have incredibly radical implications at every level so yeah I think it was uh, those were the things that they took from the course um, and, and what about from your incredibly interesting sounding course what do you what do you think that they uh, took from it mainly well I, th I think yeah the, the, good question I've, I've been trying to reflect on that this morning um, in advance of the podcast because one key thing I think that the students learn is that when we study things academically or when students read stuff in academic journals, that doesn't necessarily have to be true. 
um, and that actually a lot of those ideas can be challenged when you go to a particular workplace or when you go to when you actually go and visit Parliament that it actually works quite differently. On the other hand, and this is where I think it's a bit paradoxical. On the other, on the other hand, those perceptions can also be debunked of how Parliament works in in real life. So one student, for example, was very apprehensive about being on this course, and she told me at the beginning that she's not sure that she wants to study this. But by the end of it, she said that all of her preconceptions about what she thought Parliament was like, that it would just be old white men who shout at each other, you know, basically what we see in Prime Minister's questions on a Wednesday. That's all that that there is to Parliament, and there's not much more to it. Um, and I think being able to debunk that was really rewarding for me to see that that students are, were beginning as the course went on were able to really understand that parliament is much much more than prime minister's questions but also the way that the way that that works in practice i think is really interesting the way that it's really nuanced and there are lots of different questions and debates about the role of parliament in politics the, what it means for democracy and all of these things which which i really enjoyed and it came through most especially through the final assessment that students have to do which is a, a final essay and rather than me setting three or four questions that they have to answer um, every student can choose their own question and they design their own project and as a result of that I think there was maybe overlap between two or three questions but everything else was unique so I had 30 pretty much 30 different essays to answer to, to read and uh, and it was really really rewarding because the students had found stuff out that I didn't even know about uh, about Parliament and um, the nice thing about the course I think is that it allows you to go into a lot of detail into a lot of depth and challenge some of those pre-existing ideas in lots of different ways not only by what we understand by the academic literature but also the popular sort of perceptions around Parliament as well um, sorry that was a bit uh, rambly in terms of my my answer there as a listener, I, I could say it wasn't rambly to me. Uh, it was it was very succinct. <laughs> Great. So I guess I mean one one final question that I was going to ask you guys is why do you think that in the end the course was nominated? Yeah. So I guess I think in part that because I've taught it a few times, I think it's um, quite well polished. I suppose I'm tooting my own horn, but I, I think yeah, running a course of the sort of three or four times I feel like is the sweet spot where you've ironed out any sort of kinks in the reading and so I found like a set of readings I'm totally happy with and I'm not yet jaded by it I haven't taught it too many times uh, but I kind of feel completely on top of the material so I think they appreciated how well it fits together so as I say I had this kind of structure of these two theories with then like specific issues that we discussed and so we kind of thought about each theory in general, then we thought about these issues, and there was a lot of overlap in the issues that we thought about for the two theories together. And I think that's a really pleasing structure of like, let's use these three or four kind of test cases for these two theories. And I've, over the, my time teaching, I've actually come to think that students prefer courses to cover fewer specific things um, than before. So I, th I think there's a sort of at least in philosophy, a tendency to think if you have an 11 week course, you cover 10 or 11 specific discrete topics. And I, again, to my surprise, I've sort of learned that students actually like to cover fewer things in more detail. So I think they like that. And then I think they enjoyed, I mean, I had a sort of unfair advantage in that it was in person in semester one, and it was the only course in that year group being taught in person. I think they just, they just really liked being in person, like going to in-person classes. And I put a lot of work into the structure, giving them sort of guidance. 
And then also in tutorials, I tried some things that I'd sort of come across in a book about teaching. And so we had like structured debates, or partly to deal with the fact that I wasn't sure like how much they could move around the room because of the restrictions and stuff. And so I would like put them into groups. One group would be you know, the, the for group and the other group would be the against group. And they would have to come up with like two arguments in favor of their view. And then we'd have this kind of structured debate which I think worked nicely in its own right, but especially in ethics, I think it works really nicely because there tends to not be a kind of random distribution of the views they hold. And so actually as a way of getting them to think really carefully about some view, making some of them argue in favor of it when actually almost none of them in the room hold that view before the class starts. I think that's actually really helpful because otherwise it's a bit easy for a class to just be, we all think this uh, and we're just sort of going around re reaffirming it. So yeah, I think that those were things that students really appreciated um, about it. And then what, what about your course? Um, what, what do you think they, um, they liked especially about it? I think ultimately the course was probably nominated because of the the disjuncture between it wasn't just an academic course it, it, you know it, you had guest speakers i think that that gets praised um uh, on a regular basis but i think on top of that what was different this year i suppose compared to previous years was that in semester one i um i had a fellowship in the house of commons and so i worked for parliament for three months and so when i came to teach the course this year although it was always research informed you know every week i would have a little bit of something research related that i was doing um that could help illustrate examples or whatever. This time round, I could use those three months where I was working in Parliament for a, for a committee to really embed research throughout every week and every um, every seminar. And some of the guest speakers I had worked with previously. I'd like to think that that passion that I have for studying parliaments sort of shone through and enticed students to also have some of that passion for parliament. Uh, at least that's my idealistic hope at the end that they um, that they all want to study parliaments more by the end. Um, although of course that's not, that's obviously not true. But <laughs> but you know I, I think that's one of the one of the things that really worked about the course is that it that I really tried to make it uh, come to life uh, through those guest speakers, but also through, you know, the, the cutting edge of research as well, that it's not just trying to teach the grand old speakers or the grand old books that we have on Parliament from the 80s and 90s, but bringing in sort of stuff that hasn't even been published yet. Um, uh, and some of the interview findings that I had from last semester and so on and so forth. I mean, it sounds like a fantastic course. Um, so I um, will definitely be recommending it to students. Oh, thank, thanks, Guy. Likewise with yours. I mean, I think what a lot of people can sometimes think about when it comes to teaching or, or trying to learn about philosophy is that it, it can be quite abstract sometimes and that it's it's an interesting thing to think about, but then it you know bears no relevance later on, um, which is, I think, something that you absolutely challenge in your course, which is why I think um, a lot more students should be studying philosophy, actually. I completely agree. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to our contributors and thank you for listening to this episode of our Teaching Award series. Teaching Matters is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh's Institute for Academic Development. For more posts and conversations about teaching and learning, head to our blog. We'd be delighted for you to join these conversations there. To do so, just email us at teachingmatters@ed.ac.uk. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. All our social media handles are in the description of this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider following us on Spotify 
or subscribing on Apple Podcasts and leaving a five-star review. Music for this episode was provided by Hook Sounds. In the meantime, stay curious.